I thank you, Tim, for that prayer supplication. I thank you, our guests and members alike, for taking time to come and share in this wonderful time of worship together. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We'll only be there briefly because the primary focus of our message this morning will be yet in another Gospel. But while you're turning over to Luke chapter 2, let me just challenge you to use your imagination and imagine a master artist as he takes four of his top students, art students if you will, out on a hillside, a rolling hillside, and it is overlooking a beautiful panoramic view complete with uh, uh, majestic mountains in the background and deep uh, green forest uh, at the base of the mountains and, and then rolling uh, green meadows, if you can imagine, and then a flowing gentle river or stream uh, going down through the, stream, through the center of those meadows. And, and so the master artist takes and positions each one of his art students, if you will, his top-notch art students, uh, strategically along that hillside at different points. And then he instructs them, each one of them, using their own unique artistic skills and from their own perspective to paint everything or draw everything that they see. And so the, art, the master artist then assumes his place sitting at the top of the hill watching his students feverishly engage in this task. After they're finished, he collects all the finished products. He takes the four drawings that the students have done. He goes back to his own studio, positions each one on an easel, and with, a, with, with his own canvas before him, he begins to paint a beautiful, totally comprehensive uh, uh, rendition of that scene or scenario based on what each one of these students has given to him from their own perspective. You know, that's a simple illustration of the wonderful message of the gospel that God gives to us. The gospel is a story of the life and ministry of the Son of God who came into this world to reveal to lost and, and sinful humanity the amazing grace and love of God. And so God has taken the four gospel writers that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of them just as different as, as, as snowflakes, if you will. And, and their individuals, and, and allows them from their own writing style to tell from their own perspective the gospel story. And so we have that compilation in the four gospels from di four different perspectives of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so as, as we look at this, we're going to be beginning in Luke chapter 2, as I said, but then we're going to quickly go over to the Gospel of Matthew. And you'll see uh, that from Matthew's perspective, he's describing Jesus to his predominantly Jewish audience, if you will, his Jewish readers. He's describing Jesus, the Son of God, as the King, long promised, the descendant of David, who would reign forever over all of Israel. So Jesus, the Messiah, is the King. On the other hand, Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man because he's writing to predominantly Gentiles, people outside of Judaism. And he's helping them to see that this same Son of God that Matthew is so 
feverishly trying to describe as king, he's describing him as the son of man, God, man, who has come to make himself available not only to the Jews, but all of humanity. Oh, listen, the gospel as you and I are blessed to possess it, all four of the gospels combined make one beautiful, comprehensive description of the awesome and inspiring life of the Son of God. And so as we begin looking today, I want to invite you to look in, in your Bibles at Luke chapter 2, verse 39. And, and if you recall from previous message, we brought you up to, Luke brings us up through 40 days, of, the first 40 days, if you will, of Jesus' life on the earth, incarnate, Emmanuel, God. He's a baby, 40 days old. They have circumcised him according to Jewish law. They brought him to the temple, Mary and Joseph, to present him as the law required. Now, if you're looking at Luke's gospel in his perspective, in his rendition, there in chapter 2, verse 39, it simply says, So when they, speaking of Mary and Joseph, had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Now, I want you to stop there because I guarantee you there are people who in their minds are protesting because they're saying, whoa, time out, wait a minute. That's not the whole Christmas story. I mean, sure, the, 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 the Mary and Joseph, the baby in the, in, the, in the stable, the baby in a manger, and, 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 the, and the shepherds out in the fields and the angels and, and the singing of glory to God and the, and the shepherds coming to and all of that. But wait, wait, something's missing. Well, of course it is. Because, see, Luke is writing from his perspective, and he is describing to his writers the importance of seeing that Jesus was born into a humble family, into a humble town, and he's the people's savior, not just for one particular group. But on the other hand, Matthew, in his description of the Christmas story, which, by the way, uh, the Bible doesn't quite match up with some of the Hallmark Christmas cards and, and some of the manger scenes that you see because typically in our Christmas cards at the manger scene at the little stable, you'll find the three wise men and there are three camels parked out there in the back and, uh, and you know, bringing their gifts and everything. But as you understand here, um, this is not really the case. Matthew helps us to see that. And so, from Matthew's perspective today in chapter 2 of Matthew, I'm going to invite you to go back there. And I want you to see, first of all, because we're talking about, here's where the wise men come in. Matthew introduces them because that's a part of the perspective he wants to share as he writes to the Jewish people. He wants them to see, first of all, as we begin there in chapter 2, in verse 1, the Magi's adoration and worship of the king. He's fulfilling... Oh, he's careful. Matthew is very careful, and you'll see this, to point out how this Jesus, this baby born of a virgin, uh, he is indeed and fulfills not only through the genealogy that Matthew gives us that, that demonstrates that he is absolutely a descendant of David, King David, and therefore the rightful king of Israel. But also that he fulfills very certain prophecies. He's, he fulfills Old Testament prophecies. And so in fulfilling those prophecies, he's ensuring the Jews that this is indeed the Messiah. No one. I was reading in one of the commentaries, Jesus in all of his lifetime fulfills 
330 Old Testament prophecies. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's no human being ever possible that could fulfill that number of prophecies. And, that, and so that's important. And you'll see that filtered into Matthew's rendition. Now let me put your minds to ease. You're thinking, oh my goodness. It's taken him a month just to get to Luke chapter 2. And now is he going to try to do all four of the Gospels? No, I'm not. <laughs> we'll be going back to Luke, the primary text. And I, my intention is to lead us through a series of messages focusing on the primary Gospel, Luke. But in chapter 2, Matthew, I want you to see here, he begins, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, it's important that, that you note here, he's not describing these wise men as, as kings. It wasn't three kings from the Orient, yet they are important men. They are, they are magi. They are wise men from the eastern province or eastern uh, uh, empire, the Persian empire, the Parthian empire. And so, you, you know, so many times we think about the wise men coming, like I say, to the stable where the manger was. But as we see, they, they actually come to a house and Jesus is a little older as a child at this point. Uh, and so... First of all, let's look at the mysterious appearance of the wise men from the east. The, there's nothing in the Bible to suggest, contrary again to tradition, that it was only three wise men. In fact, given the prestigious status and reputation of these, quote, kingmakers, they probably would not have traveled, just three. More than likely, most scholars say, they came with a whole contingency of troops, and, and so this is, a, this is a big to-do when they come into town, and there was probably more than three magi. We, we simply deduced that there are three wise men because there were three gifts, but that's not the case. So just imagine this, this large contingency of, of, of wise men and, and soldiers coming into the city of, of Jerusalem. Historians tell us that in the Persian Empire, that every Persian king had to complete a very rigorous training by the Magi, the wise men, including scientific and religious knowledge. And so for it, there, no, king, no, no king assumed the throne without being under the, the meticulous and careful guidance and training of one of these Magi. So they had power. They had prominence in their kingdom. And they were known to be king makers, Translated in a modern maybe scenario, it would be like the, the, in Star Wars, the Jedi and the, and the, and the, and the young budding Jedis having to train under Yoda. I mean, it was important to, to, their, to their empire that these kings would be students of these magi. And so as they come into town, you're going to see that they come and they make an impact. They were, and, and not only that, we find that in verse 2, they, they come from the east to Jerusalem and they're saying in verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And that's an interesting play on words because there is one sitting in Jerusalem who has a title of king of the Jews. So immediately this begins to, to create a, a stir. And listen to what else they say in verse 2. For we have seen his star 
his star in the east, in other words, from the east, it's not facing from Jerusalem back towards the east, but we come from the east and we saw a special star. Now these magi not only are, 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 are trained in science, but they're trained in astronomy and astrology. They know the heavens. And they know when something odd and different shows up. And they recognize that this was the star that was given divinely by the God of the Jews to guide those who would see it. And the star, ladies and gentlemen, I, was, I like how Dr. John MacArthur discounts the modern attempts to try to scientifically explain how did the Bethlehem star or, you know, occur. It, it wasn't some supernova. It wasn't the, 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 the coming together or alignment of planets. It wasn't a, a, a comma, a, a, a comet. It was, it was a creation supernaturally of God. It was the Shekinah glory of God. We're going through the book of Exodus and we're learning in our CGGs about how God guided the children of Israel through the Red Sea into the wilderness, through the wilderness. And how did he do that? One of the ways he manifested his presence to his people was through his Shekinah glory. The bright and glowing glory of God. And it was very possible, improbable in fact, that this star was the strategically placed Shekinah glory of God in the heavens strategically to guide those that God would want to draw to see his son. And that was in this case, the wise men. So not only did we see the mysterious appearance of the wise men from the east and, and all of their great contingency and there's a, there's a star in Jerusalem, but the surprising announcement and their unexpected mission as we look further, listen to what they're saying. Where, where is he who has been born of the Jews? We're, we're looking for a very specific individual. They had knowledge that obviously people in Jerusalem didn't have. And you wonder, how could they know that? How could they know something that the Jewish people at this point didn't even know? Well, scholars tell us that the, the Magi had long time associations with a great Jewish prophet by the name of Daniel. You may remember Daniel was one of those young men, Jewish young men, during the, the Babylonian captivity he was taken into Babylon. And Daniel was a committed follower of Jehovah. He was an outstanding young man. And, and there was a time when the king of Babylon had a very disturbing dream and there in Daniel chapter 2, you may recall how he called all the wise men, the Magi. This is where they originate. And, and, and they were very trusted counselors and advisors to the king. He called all of the Babylonian wise men to help him to interpret the dream. And they couldn't. And they couldn't. And the king was absolutely frustrated. Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely frustrated. And in chapter 2, verse 24 of Daniel, he says, um, I'm going to destroy all. He was ready to annihilate every one of the Magi. Until someone says, wait a minute. There's one of the Hebrew captives who seems to have an unusually strong connection with his God. And his name is Daniel. And he has an ability to interpret dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar sent for Daniel. And Daniel 
did just that. He made it clear to Nebuchadnezzar that it was only through God. And so because Daniel was able to interpret this very troubling dream, which turned out to be prophecy of things to come, in fact, prophesying the very coming of this Christ we're talking about, our Lord. And when he interpreted the dream for the king, it says in verse 46 of chapter 2, the king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and revealer of secrets, since you could reveal this secret. And you say, well, wait a minute. What does this have to do with the magi, the wise men? Hold on. Hold on. First of all, if you were a wise man and that particular time, at that very moment, Daniel becomes a hero. Guess who has just saved your skin because David told the king, don't destroy the, the wise men. Don't harm the wise men. So then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. So now he is directing and he is teaching and he is instructing and he is, he, is, he is supervising this very prominent class of, of scholars, if you will, who had such an influence not only politically, but also judicially in the whole Persian Empire, Babylonian and then subsequently the Persian Empire. So then just imagine that Daniel's teaching Old Testament prophecy. He's teaching these wise men, these, these Persian pagans, if you will. He's introducing to them Jehovah God. He's introducing to them the people who are the people of God, the Jews, His people. And no doubt has told them that God has given signs and prophecies that, that He is going to bring forth a king who will be the king of all kings, the king of the Jews. And hence, with that knowledge, they've been watching they understand that from the teachings of the Old Testament that God would send the stars a sign. They've been watching. They've been anticipating for generations that something unusual will happen. And when God places his Shekinah glory in the sky strategically over the town of Bethlehem or over the region of, Jew, of, of Israel, they are directed. And so they make their way here to the to the city of Jerusalem. And so in chapter 2 of Matthew, we're going to look at the other part, but I want you to see their response. Once they get to Bethlehem, of course they have their interaction with King Herod, we'll talk about that. But when they finally get to Bethlehem, I want us to pick up there in verse 7. Before they leave from Jerusalem, it says, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star had appeared. That's important. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search, diligently for, uh, uh, go search diligently for the young child. Notice Jesus is not called an infant anymore here because he's older. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Liar, liar, your pants on fire. When they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east, the Shekinah glory of God, given precisely to guide this contingency of Persian wise men, 
came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, at this time, child is older, Mary and Joseph had been in the region of Bethlehem long enough to settle down for a little bit because the baby's still fairly young. And they've moved from the stable, which I think is a good idea if you've ever been around a stable. It's not a place that you want to live and certainly not raise a baby there in a house. And, and so now it tells us here that they find the child, the young child, with Mary, his mother. And you know, it's interesting. As you watch and, and follow through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is always listed first. It's not Mary and Jesus. The child, and if your translation capitalizes as mine does, signifying this is the Christ child. The child and then his mother. He always takes preeminence over any other human being, including his mother. So when they saw the young child, verse 11, chapter 2 of Matthew, when they saw the young child with Mary's mother, and fell, <clears throat> and these are prominent, prestigious, powerful Persian kingmakers. And here's a baby. But they know in their heart this is not an ordinary baby. They fell down and worshipped him. And, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented him gifts, or presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And you wonder, what's the significance? Commentaries tell us that the gifts are symbolisms, or symbols, of, of, of Christ, the gold signifying his nobility, his kingship. Gold was the most precious metal. And therefore, it signifies his nobility, his kingship, the frankincense, a sweet-smelling incense, highly valued, signified his deity. Church father Origen made that point in his description of the gifts of the wise men. And then myrrh, a less expensive gift, but yet still in that time period, a very, a very valuable gift. And so it was a, uh, a, a, an ointment of fragrance, and it signifies his humanity. But you see, they, they find this king of the Jews, this baby, this long-promised Messiah, and their response is to worship him. Should, so should our worship, our response, every time we, we meditate upon the person of Christ and, 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 and the mission of Christ and, and the gift of salvation extended to us through how much we depend upon him, our response automatically ought to be worshiping him, humbling ourselves and worshiping him. Hey, listen, if these kingmakers are compelled to do that, who are we not to, especially those who have been washed by his blood and saved and redeemed from the penalty of our sins? And not only do they fall down before him, but they give to him sacrificially. They make very significant sacrifices to show their homage to him. I appreciate the section that the segment of our church seminar this weekend that Brother Richard gave, uh, led us on in, in helping to understand the importance of giving. And this is a, this is a, a key ingredient in, in worship 
is, is being able to give back to God a portion of that which He's blessed us with. It, it, it demonstrates our love for Him, our adoration as the wise men are doing there. So the wise men, as we have seen there, in verse 12, then being divinely warned in a dream they should not, that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their own country another way. They didn't go back through Jerusalem. They didn't go back to give an update to King Herod. God says, take another route home. There's a purpose in that. And we'll see that now. Because in contrast to the adoration of the, of the king by the wise men, we're going to see now in Matthew chapter 2 that Herod's agitation, Herod's agitation and hatred towards the king. This is another reason that Matthew focuses on this segment of the events around the early life of Christ. Because he's presenting the fact that Jesus not only was rejected later in his life when he was hung on a cross at the insistence of the Jewish leaders, but, but Jesus was rejected from the very get-go by his own people throughout his life. And Herod personifies that rejection. His deep agitation. Herod the Great is an interesting, he's the first in a whole line of families with the name Herod. But he is the first. And, and to his credit, he was a, he was a powerful man. He, he was a clever politician. He knew how to work the people. In a time of a famine, he melted down some of the palace gold and distributed food to all the needy and the hungry. Oh, listen, he was a politician. He knew how to keep the masses on his side. He was a, he was a mighty military man. Prior to his coming to the, the, the rulership of, of, the, of the Jewish people, the Parthians the, had, 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 had invaded and ruled that area, Syria and Palestine. And Herod, under the instructions and, and with the uh, backing of Rome, fought mightily and drove the Parthians out of that whole region. Oh, he was a champion. He had high regards he, all the way back in Rome. He was, he was highly regarded by the Romans. And, in, and, and we're told by historians that the this, this Caesar, Octavius, gave Herod the title because we know it, he's called king of the Jews. Where did that come from? Well, the Caesar gave it to him. Called him the king of the Jews and the Roman Senate confirmed it. And so not only was he the governor of the whole region, he was also known officially as the king of the Jews. The only problem with that is Herod wasn't a biological descendant of Jacob. He was an Edomian. Actually, he was a descendant of Esau. And so, therefore, he was an illegitimate king of the Jews. And yet, he liked to tout that. He married a very prominent Jewish woman so that his ties with the Jews would win the favor of the people. But, but nonetheless, he was considered by Rome and others as the king of the Jews. And yet, when news comes by these strange and yet powerful and prominent wise men into town. Where is the king of the Jews? You can imagine Herod thinking, wait a minute. I thought I was. In addition to, or in contrast, I guess I should say to his qualities, Herod had one deep, 
dangerous flaw. He was a, he was a, 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 a very jealous, insecure, violent man. In fact, he was so insecure and so jealous, right off the bat he had his brother-in-law drown. But so clever that he sponsored a great prominent funeral for his brother-in-law and even made himself weep so that people would be impressed. But then what long after that he began to feel insecure about his wife so he had her killed. That wasn't good enough. He still didn't feel secure because he's so afraid somebody in the family is going to try to take over his throne. So just to be on the safe side he killed his mother-in-law too. They said before it was all said and done before Herod the great died, he ended up killing three of his own sons. He was a dangerous man. And yet we see beginning in chapter 2 verse 3 there how Herod cleverly sets out to devise a sinister plot to kill Jesus. That's his response. That he, he has no intentions of paying homage to or recognizing the legitimacy of this one who is claimed to be born king of the Jews. And so in chapter 2, verse 3, when Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Folks, Jerusalem wasn't troubled by the news of the wise men. <laughs> they were troubled because their crazy king is troubled. They knew somebody's head's going to roll somehow, somewhere. So the whole city, when the king ain't happy, nobody ain't happy. Pardon the English. In verse 4, when he had gathered all the, the chief priests and scribes, I mean all the prominent, knowledgeable uh, uh, religious leaders in, in, in Jerusalem, he inquired of them, in my translation is polite, says he inquired of them, in some other translations says he demanded of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, they knew. They didn't have to go do extensive research in Jewish libraries. They knew that. They knew their prophecy. So they, they, they told him. They said to him in verse 5, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this it was written by the prophet. We read this in our responsive reading today in our worship guides. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You want to know where he is, king? And Bethlehem is about five, six miles southeast, southwest of Jerusalem. Just, just out what we would call the suburbs nowadays. He's not that far away. We know where he is. We know where the Messiah is predicted to, to be born. But also notice... That when, in verse 8, and, and, and he, Herod, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Oh, goody, goody. Right, you go find him, and when you come back, give me GPS location so I'll know exactly which street and which house that I can find him so I can kill, I, I mean, worship him. Oh, he's clever. And so he's, he's intent on pinpointing the location of this suspected rival. But yet, all along, Matthew's pointing out, when he introduces prophecy, ladies and gentlemen, it's not just to fall back in Old Testament writings. Matthew 
is convincing his Jewish readers that this one called Jesus the Christ, he fulfills the actual words of our prophets. He is the promised Messiah of the people of God. And so, you see that being played out too. So he is, is pinpointing the location of, the, of, of Christ, and then he is, and that's not good enough. He wants to ascertain the approximate age of the child as well. So look at verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Oh, that's interesting. By the way, gentlemen, can you remember exactly when you first saw that star? You see, in his wicked, evil mind, troubled mind, he's calculating. How old is this boy now? I need to know where he is, and I need to know as close as I can how old he is. Now, you guys come on back here, and you tell me where he is, and you said maybe a year ago you saw the star, and you've been traveling that long. Okay, gotcha. You see the cruelty of this man. But then we saw back earlier in chapter 2 where the wise men were instructed by God not to come back. And they obediently followed God's advice. And when they didn't come back to Jerusalem as Herod had instructed them to do, after all, he's the host king, then things began to unravel. In verse 12, it tells about the, the wise men being divinely warned of the dream that they should not return to Herod. They departed for their own country another way. Look at verse 13. The mood changes radically. The circumstances change radically. I'll tell you what, look at verse 16. We'll come back to verse 13. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, in some translation, enraged. And he sent forth and, and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he determined from the wise men. You see what he's doing? He's not saying, I, I, I want every one-year-old child, because they said, you know, probably about a year, it's when they first saw. Oh, no, no. Just to make sure. By all means, kill all the one-year-olds, but kill every male child that just happens to be under two years old. That'll get them all. That'll cast the net. Oh, you're talking about a very viciously evil, threatened man. And not only does he instruct them to kill all the children, two years, uh, boys, two years and younger, but did you notice there? He didn't say, now just, just do this in, in Bethlehem. He says, in Bethlehem and all its districts. Oh, don't stop at the city limits of Bethlehem, the town limits of Bethlehem. But I'll draw a bigger circle because you see, I want to make sure I get this man or boy that may become my political rival and so he says I'll draw the circle maybe a radius of, of 10 miles from Bethlehem and that includes a lot of innocent baby boys 
I want you to see in verse 17 that Matthew very carefully points out that this was fulfilled what was written by Jeremiah the prophet saying in verse 18 this is Jeremiah 31 15 a voice was heard in Ramah Ramah ladies and gentlemen is five miles north of Jerusalem and that's how wide the circle went Bethlehem is five miles south Ramah is five miles north every two year old baby in that whole scope was speared, hacked chopped, stomped however the Roman, uh, the, the Roman soldiers wanted to do it but, but Jeremiah is talking about this mighty gut wrenching lamentation he says a voice was heard in Ramah this is about 600 years earlier lamentation weeping and great mourning Rachel who is Rachel you remember we just studied Jacob and his two wives Leah and Rachel Rachel was his favorite and Rachel gave him Joseph and Benjamin and both both of those sons are represented in northern Israel and in southern Israel because Joseph's sons Manasseh and Ephraim to the north and Benjamin to the south. Rachel, the barren woman you may recall in the story of Jacob who, who literally cried out, give me children or die. Oh, do you think Rachel's children meant a lot to her? When she'd been barren for so long and God finally blessed her to have two boys, do you think her children mattered to her? And prophetically, Jeremiah is saying, there's that time. And Ramar, Ramar the town, has a, a strategic position. It, it is on the border of northern Israel and then Judah to the south. And in the time of Jeremiah, historically, there was great lamentation. As if Rachel knew somehow from the grave that her precious descendants great-great-great-great-grandchildren were being herded up by the massive Babylonian army and they were being herded up like cattle at the town of Ramar and there they were being processed and then deported off to the foreign country of Babylon to be slaves forever and ever. Oh, listen, from the grave, Rachel, who says, give me children or I'll die, was weeping and lamenting for the fate of her children and yet prophetically this is being fulfilled in the person of Christ because throughout the whole region there was once again a great lamentation just like the Jewish mothers back in Jeremiah's time as they watched their children being hauled off in ox carts off as slaves and they were weeping and, and, and lamenting and, 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 and mourning in this time, in this very time, this prophecy is perfectly fulfilled at the hand of a murderous king called Herod. And Matthew's careful to help his people understand that this is not an accident. This is not coincidental. This is the fulfillment of God's eternal divine plan that centers on his precious son, Jesus Christ. And it's being fulfilled right before their eyes. He is the Messiah. Matthew is screaming in the writing of his rendition of the gospel. 
he meets the qualifications of nobility, who else is going to attract kingmakers from the east to come and bow down and offer precious gifts to him? Who else will draw the wrath of a powerful king like Herod? Who else fulfills the prophet's words of old? Who else but the Son of God, Jesus Christ? He is the promised Son of God. We'll stop there and we'll continue later. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I realize that we are beyond the celebrations of the birth of Christ. That there is so much, Lord, so much in an event that we have simplified. And Lord, we have diminished, forgive us, into a simple holiday. The very concept of Emmanuel, God, coming into the world and dwelling as a human being, yet fully God. Oh Lord, there's a lot packed in to those early days of the life of Christ that impacts Jews and Gentiles alike. Lord, help us to be humbled by the magnitude of what you did in Christ then and throughout his life and ministry and continue to do even today in our lives. May we come worship and adore Him. May we commit our very lives to Him because He is the Son of God, Savior of the world, our Lord and our Savior. Oh God, speak. Continue to speak through these wonderful words, through the, prophets, uh, through the gospel writers and the prophets. And we'll give you praise. Move us, Lord, in the direction you would have us to go. Lord, we know that your purpose in sending Christ was to redeem lost sinners, those who, by the very nature of our sinfulness, were separated from you. Holy God, and yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world to bridge that eternal gap between man and God and giving his life on the cross to pay the price for the redemption of our sins. We celebrated that in our Lord's Supper and we celebrate that for those who have been saved. But Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not been drawn to Christ by your Holy Spirit to, to acknowledge their sinfulness and to understand the eternal damnation that awaits their soul. And Lord, if you're drawing them to Christ and you're revealing them to them through the Word of God and by your Spirit, that you are reaching out to them by your grace and extending to them a wonderful gift of forgiveness and salvation that will bestow upon them the wonderful, awesome, mind-boggling privilege of being an eternal member of the kingdom of God, the family of God in heaven with you. Lord, if anyone here today, you are speaking to their heart in such a manner, I pray, Lord, if this is the day of salvation for them, you will bring them to meet with me or Pastor Mark or one of our elders and let us have the opportunity to share from the word of God how they can know that they're saved and are a part of God's family and have a home in heaven one day for eternity.